For, for you guys who are here for the first time, we have been working through Matthew, a section of uh, Matthew that he's dealing with what's on the inside, affecting the outside. He's dealing with faith. We've looked at that. He talks about what a great faith is. And the two times in Matthew that he's affirmed a great faith in person, they were not Jewish people. They were Gentile people, which had to be mind-blowing for the disciples. And, and Jesus points out to these guys, remember, who is his primary ministry to during his time on earth? But even within the Jews, who's his primary focus on? To the twelve, right? And his, even within those guys, his primary focus is on Peter, James, and John. It's the master plan. Robert Coleman wrote a book called The Master Plan of Evangelism. And it's, it's the focus that Jesus had because He knew that if you're going to go deep, you have to kind of screen through. And He had selected guys, Peter, James, and John. Were they perfect? No. James and John over, argued over who would be the greatest. Peter was always sticking his foot in his mouth thinking that he had a better plan than God's plan. But God still chose those three guys to build into and, and he's teaching them. We looked at Matthew 15 where he, he says, listen, it's not on the outside, what, what you do on the outside that matters, it's what's on the inside. Because all these ceremonial laws they had tried to keep to, to prove that they were holy enough to be in front of God. And he says, no, it's not those things. Those were merely a picture and a shadow of what was to come. When Jesus is here, he's saying, it's not what's on the outside that defiles a man, it's what's in his heart. It comes, It flows from that. And then he, he, he gave them three examples of ministering to Gentile people. Now, it's hard for us to imagine. Ronnie has a real good life example because Ronnie, a black man, led a KKK white guy to Christ. Now, think about that. That's exactly what Jesus did times a thousand when he went to the Gentile people. That's so hard for us to imagine because the Jews hated the Gentiles. Because they were seen as pagan worshipers. Idol worshipers. And they were told to. And they were told to separate from them. Because of their pagan and idol worship. And so Jesus gives them these examples and models for them. And then he, uh, Matthew lays out these different kinds of faith we saw last week. A self-sufficient faith which was illustrated by the Pharisees and the Sadducees who didn't care really about God and honoring God. All they cared about was maintaining power. Have we seen examples in our own government of that? And it doesn't matter whether you're looking at the Republican Party or the Democratic Party. Everybody tries to maintain power, and it's an ugly battle, isn't it? And that's what happened with the disciples, what they saw in the Pharisees and Sadducees. They saw an ugly depiction when these guys started coming after Jesus. So Jesus pulls back a little bit from them. He goes to this Gentile area, but then the Pharisees and the Sadducees come to Him and... Jesus rebukes them in front of them, but He's illustrating this self-sufficient faith, which is really no faith at all. But He also illustrated a short-sighted faith when the disciples are worried about bread when He's fed 50,000 people almost with 12 loaves of bread. Because they're not thinking He can still do this or that He won't do this. So they had this very short-sighted faith, but we saw saving faith when Peter said, you are the Christ. You're the Messiah. And, and, and he says, flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you. That's really hard for us guys to understand. 
Because none of us come, we're all blind people. There's blind people that will never see, and there's blind people that see because the Holy Spirit opens their eyes to see. Two kinds. And I hope that you're here today as one of those who see because the Holy Spirit opens your eyes to see. Because you can only manufacture that fake faith for so long. That wall comes crumbling down as you endure hardship after hardship after hardship. It erodes because it's built on sand, to quote what Jesus said. But he also showed us a selfish faith when even as people of faith, because here Peter makes this profession, but Jesus is telling him the plan for him to suffer, and he says, whoa, you're not going to go to the cross. I ain't going to let that happen to you. And did he try to prevent that? Yeah, he grabbed a sword in the garden, he cut a guy's ear off. So he meant what he said. His plan, he tried to elevate above God's plan. Do we do that? Almost a daily basis, seems like, doesn't it? We elevate our plan. That's a very selfish faith. It's not really seeing what God wants. It's seeing what I want. Because I think if I can maintain control of what my perception of what life ought to be is, then I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be happier. I'm going to be more at peace. But real true peace doesn't come from your circumstances being controlled. It comes from one place. It's an internal It's an internal thing that God can give you in trusting Him. And so He shows this sacrificial faith at the end. He says, listen, you've got to deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow Me. That's what, it, that's what true sacrificial faith is. Any man who tries to hold on to his world is going to what? Lose the world. What are you going to give in exchange for your soul? What, what's it worth to you? Would you give up your kid? I would. Would you give up your wife? I would. But not for, not for what I want. I give them up for Christ. Because I know in giving them up for Christ, I'm going to get them better. Because I deal with them through Christ. You understand what I'm saying? One guy said, if you shoot for Christ, you get Christ in the world. But if you shoot for the world, you lose them both. And it's the same thing. And it, you can substitute your kid, your wife, your job, financial security, whatever you want in there. And so this sacrificial faith is what Jesus is trying to model and teach His disciples. But they do not have a perception of that. They, their perception of Messiah is a glorious Messiah, a, a powerful Messiah, one who's going to come and set everything right. And has Jesus done that? No. He has come and instead of throwing the Romans out, He's healing Gentiles. That makes no sense to them because He's veiled to them. He's not... Un, he's shown snippets of His power in healing people, but they haven't seen His glory yet. The disciples had a perception of Jesus of what He should be. You see, in their mind, there was no way He was God. He was just sent from God like Elijah like John the Baptist or other prophets before. He was a man who definitely was sent from God, but they had no concept of Him actually being God. And so what He does is when in verse, uh, or the end of chapter 16 last week, He says, some of you are not going to pass away this, in this generation until you see the glory of God. Well, six days later, He reveals His glory to them. These three men... Peter, James, and John up on the Mount of Transfiguration. Matthew has this fascination with mountains. You know, Jesus was tempted on the mountain. He gave the first sermon to the disciples up on the mountain. He went up on the mountain to choose His disciples. 
And here he is up on the mountain revealing his glory to these three. There's just something about mountains and going up there uh, that Matthew is fascinated with. But in this passage today, we're going to look at Matthew 17. And really, there's four witnesses to the deity of Christ, the fact that he's God. And that's what, what he's really bringing out here is that in this passage, we're going to see the witness of the revealed light or the unveiled light. Basically, what he does is he unveils the light. God came in the flesh. He came in the flesh and he put skin on. And so they didn't think he was God. They just thought he was sent from God. But up on that mountain, they saw the light that only comes from God. It's the, it's the Shekinah glory light that's talked about. Even though Shekinah is not in the Bible, I don't know if you know that. You hear the Shekinah glory of God? The word Shekinah is not in the Bible. It, it's formed, it actually means presence. And the word presence is in the Bible. But we talk about the Shekinah glory. It's, it's the brightness of God being someplace. It's the God of the fire that led the people of Israel. It's the God in the burning bush. It's the brightness of God that made Moses' face glow. And, and Jesus unveiled that light to them. And here's the thing about Jesus. This was not a reflective light like it's in us. This is a self-radiating light. This is a light that's coming out of him. And we're going to see that. Even the word used there is important in seeing that. Second, we see the witness of God's written word to his deity. The witness of his written word. And how do we know that? Because Elijah and Moses are there up on the mountain with him. And there's a reason for Moses. Moses was known as the lawgiver. And Elijah, the greatest prophet that ever lived. So you have the law and the prophets, which basically make up the Old Testament. And there are many passages in the New Testament that refer to the Old Testament as the law and the prophets, the law and the prophets. So there's a reason these two are there. Third, we see the witness of God's holy presence. Not just the light of His presence, but His voice. And when His voice speaks, you know, people, I've heard people say, well, God told me. And I said, what'd you do when He told you? And well, you're on your face. When you hear His voice, you'll be on your face. And we see that here in Scripture. When God's voice, it's a terrifying thing for a human who is sin stained not that our sin isn't forgiven we sin every day we, we're in rehab till we get on the other side none of us are 100% pure now in judgment we're seen as pure we're positionally pure and he's conforming us to the image of purity of Christ through our lifetime but until we step through that doorway onto the other side we still carry sin on the outside as we, we deal with it until we confess it that's why he says if we confess we are forgiven, and it's an ongoing confession. That's hard for us to realize sometimes. Because I think sometimes we think, well, we're pure. But He only sees us as pure because of Christ. But none of us really are pure. He put His Spirit within us, and it's growing us. It's conforming us to that image, Paul says. And finally, the last witness is the witness of a prophetic messenger. Not just any prophetic messenger, but the prophetic messenger that was uh, declared going to come before Jesus, and his name was what? Elijah. We know that from Malachi chapter 3, 1 and chapter 4, verse 5. Elijah was going to be a forerunner 
Now, what we've already seen in Matthew chapter 11 is Jesus say who Elijah was. Who was Elijah? John the Baptist. We know that. We've already covered that in here. But we're going to go back because the disciples still don't get it. And he's still having to explain it. Do they get it even after this? No. <laughs> they don't get it for a while. They don't get a lot of things for a while, but neither do we, so we can't be too hard on them. So, read with me in chapter 17, verse 1. We're going to jump through this and we're going to come back and we're going to look at each one of these. Chapter 17, verse 1. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up on a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there were appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to Him. Now when the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and they were terrified. But Jesus came and He touched them, saying, Rise, have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, Tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. And the disciples asked him, Then why did the scribes say that first Elijah must come? He answered, Elijah does come, and he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come, and they did not recognize him, but they did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. May God bless the reading of his word. So the first thing we see is this transfiguration. The word there for transfigure is the word that we get the word metamorphosis from. And a metamorphosis, according to the dictionary, is changes that occur on the outside that are done by what takes place on the inside. You get that? So changes that happen on the outside that begin on the inside. So what Jesus does is he, all, he always has the light inside him, but it's been veiled. It's been not revealed. Why? Because he didn't come to establish a political kingdom. He didn't come to establish some kind of earthly kingdom. He came to lead his people into a spiritual kingdom that was past this life. It was always that way. He said even when he was arrested, I could call 10,000 angels. I could bring them here if I wanted to. But I don't want it. That's not what I'm about. But at this moment, he reveals this radiated light that's from the inside. He takes off the skin for a moment. Let's, I mean, his, it says that his clothes change and they look bleached. They look bleached. I just I get this picture. Have you ever been into a black light room? You see how it affects the clothes? I think that he was so bright, whatever was going on, it just bleached out everything for the moment. That's how bright it was. We can't imagine that, but imagine being like five inches away from the sun. <laughs> Think about it. The Bible says that in Revelation that there will be no need for a sun or moon, that He will be the light. 
He will be that light. Think about the think about the energy. Think about the brightness of that, what that looks like. And again, this is not reflected. This is radiated from him. In fact, Hebrews itself, the writer to Hebrews brings it out in Hebrews uh, chapter 1, verse 3. It says, He is the radiance of the glory of God. Talking about Jesus. He's the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. The world stays in place, guys, because of the power that Jesus has. The sun ain't got nothing on him, brightness-wise. He is the light. Now, if you go back to Genesis chapter 3, verse 18, or verse 8, in the garden it talks about the presence of God. That's the same word that we get Shekinah glory from. That's where that that's that idea of Shekinah glory in the presence of the garden there. And what happened when Adam and Eve were in the presence of God when they had fallen? When they were in his presence, what happened? How did they feel? Say again? They they felt exposed, didn't they? Why? Because light exposes darkness always. Does darkness ever squelch light? It can't. Light always exposes darkness. And the Shekinah glory of God exposed them in the garden. But also when the light was on Moses back in Exodus chapter 33 and verse 14, it says when the tent, he went into the tent to be with God, this cloud came over and it talked about the presence of God. It was that Shekinah glory again. That glory, the light of God. So much so that it says in Exodus that Moses' face glowed. Now think about it. I, I, I say sometimes that you see pregnant women and they have a glow to them. They really do. I think they have a, 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 like an aura around them when they, they're pregnant at a certain point. But Moses' face glowed because he was in the presence of God. That same presence that was in the fire of the burning bush, that was in the pillar that led the people of Israel, that whenever the cloud would sit and it would be so glorious and yet terrifying to people, that's what the disciples saw up on the Mount of Transfiguration that day. He unveiled his light. In John 8, Jesus says, I am the light. I am the light. I'm the light of the world. John 12, he says, believe in the light. The light came to his own people, but they didn't recognize the light. And so... What he's doing for the disciples, remember how they're struggling. Remember, they're struggling with selfish faith. They're struggling with a, a short-sighted faith. So what he does is he takes Peter, James, and John up on the mountain and he shows them this light. One of the things God does is he revealed his presence to Moses so that Moses could do what he had to do. Do you understand what I'm saying? Like God gave him this revelation. Moses, Moses went in and met with God says he was a friend of God. But God revealed Himself to Moses in a way that Moses' face glowed. He was in His presence so that Moses could lead the people. Well, He takes these three disciples, and I think the reference to six days here also references back to the Old Testament. There was a six-day period that there was a waiting for the presence of God. And, and then this presence comes where He reveals Himself to Peter, James, and John because of what they're going to have to do. But He tells them, don't tell anybody. And we're going to look at why he says that in a minute. 
But he reveals the light. That's one witness of his deity. Is his deity important? It absolutely is. Because it distinguishes him from every other prophet that had ever walked on the face of the earth. Every other religious leader. None of them said they were God. They only said they were from God. Or they were trying to help people get to God. Jesus was God. Now there are cults that will tell you that he wasn't God. They'll come knocking on your door to tell you that he was a good man and he was a prophet, but he was not God. This is one of the greatest passages of exposing that he was God in the Bible. It's here. It's in Mark chapter 9. It's also in Luke chapter 9. And they give us a little more insight in Luke because he's more detailed. But Luke tells us that the disciples before this happened, they were up there. Jesus was praying. And what were they doing? They were like us, weren't they, Dave? Weak. They were weak. They were sitting up there groggy. And all of a sudden, the light blast on. And, and there's two old guys there. I think they're old. I mean, they might not have been old. I mean, see, I saw, isn't that a funny question to think about? Like, what, we're going to be in heaven? Are we going to be your age now, Dave? Or are you going to be like you were 30 years ago? You know? <laughs> Sorry. I mean, I just, you know, that, that's something that goes through your head. Like, when I see my grandmother, who I know was a believer, will I see her the way I remembered her when she was in her 80s? Because that's all I knew of her. Or will I see her when she was in her 30s? You know, what, what is she going to look like to me? There's these two guys pop on the scene with Jesus. All of a sudden, you've got to remember, they go up together. They're groggy. They're like sleeping. Jesus is praying. He's doing the Father's business. They're, they're just tired. And all of a sudden, the light goes off. Jesus' glory is there being revealed. And there's two guys there. He had to have introduced them and said, they, they just didn't automatically know who Moses and they, they, there were no pictures or cameras or, or, or internet that you could Google search and see who they were. They had no idea what they looked like. And so Jesus had to have introduced them. This is Moses, Peter, James, this is Elijah. Imagine their surprise. What? <laughs> they thought the kingdom was coming right then, probably. I mean, think about that. They had to have thought. That's why Peter goes, hey, let's build tents. Because in Zechariah, in the Old Testament book of Zechariah, there's a prophecy that in the millennial kingdom, they're going to continue to celebrate the Feast of Booths, which is also called the Feast of the Tabernacles, which celebrated the people of Israel in the wilderness being delivered to the Promised Land. In Zechariah, it says, when that happens, when we come to the millennial kingdom, we're going to build booths to remember that time. And guess what month it was when this happened? It was a feast of booth time. It was a, it was a fall. That's when it is. And, and, and so Peter, being groggy, and according to Luke, says he spoke out of his mind, he didn't know what he was saying, goes, hey, let's build some tents. Because he's thinking this is it. I just got introduced to Elijah and Moses. They had to be resurrected. So this is it. He's starting it all right now. But in his mind, he's still thinking about the Romans being kicked out. He's still thinking about taking this over here. And guess what Moses and Elijah are talking to Jesus about? It says over in Luke chapter 9 that he, they spoke to him about his departure. 
And what would that be? That was his death and resurrection. So he's talking with Moses. He's talking with Elijah about the crucifixion. The very thing that Peter said, that ain't going to happen to you, Lord. So again, he's bringing it up. And now he's got some reinforcements because guess what the Old Testament said you need for something to be established? Two or three witnesses. And how many do you have? You got three. You got Jesus, you got the law, and you got the prophets. You got his written word being represented there. Moses was the law. Elijah was the prophets. And if you look through the, the New Testament, you will see over and over in Luke 16, when the rich man Lazarus, they died. I told you this last week. And, and, and Jesus said, or Abraham said, hey, they have the law and the prophets. If they don't believe that, they're not going to believe a ghost. The law and the prophets there. At the end of Luke 24, when Jesus is on the road to Emmaus, He talks to them. And what did He teach them? The law and the prophets, it says. Go back about Moses and the prophets. Moses and the law are used interchangeably in the New Testament. But Moses always, when it says Moses and the prophets, or law and prophets, referring to the same thing. It's the same thing. Matthew chapter 7, when Jesus is talking there, He talks about the law and the prophets. In Matthew chapter 22, uh, 34 to 41, when the guy goes, hey, uh, what's the greatest commandment? And He says, on these, all the law and the prophets hang. Remember that? He's taking all, Everything hangs on that because the law and the prophets, guys, was never about our actions. It was always pointing forward to our Savior, Jesus, the Messiah. And that's where a lot of people get messed up. That's where the Jewish people got messed up. It's where even a lot of churches get messed up because they make this about the way you act instead of about a person. It's always been pointing to Jesus. From the Old Testament to the New Testament, the law and the prophets were to lay out for us that Jesus was Messiah and it's all about Him. In fact, 2 Corinthians 1.20 says all the promises of God are fulfilled in who? In Jesus and Him. Everything's fulfilled. All Old Testament prophecies. All that stuff He said. And here's what's crazy. When I think of the Old Testament, that they didn't understand the suffering Messiah. That's why they're having to have this explained to them. They got the glorified, but not the suffering. Think about all the word pictures in the Old Testament. Think about Abraham and Isaac. Think about that. The very, back in, in Genesis, Abraham putting his son up, being willing to take his life. That word picture. Think about Joseph. Did Joseph suffer before he achieved glory? Think about Daniel. Did Daniel suffer before he was put in position of authority? There was always suffering tied in. And we want, like I said last week, we want the reward without the suffering. We want the glory without the pain. And that's what we're taught, quite frankly, in a lot of places. And it's just simply not the way God unfolded His plan. And it was never meant to be that way with Jesus. Jesus never came just to be the conqueror the way they thought it was. There was a conquering through suffering and He's illustrating something for His disciples, modeling it for them. Did the disciples end up suffering? They all martyred. 
Even John, who wasn't martyred, was boiled in oil and, and condemned to a life alone on an island. We boiled the Bible into things that we do and not who it's about. And it's about Him. It's about Jesus. And so he moves from the witness of God's unveiled light to the witness of God's Word to now the witness of God's holy presence. I mean, this voice comes out when Peter says, hey, maybe we should build the, uh, the tents. First of all, he's putting Jesus on an equal playing field with Moses and Elijah. That's never a good thing. Because Moses and Elijah were human. Jesus was not just human. He was also fully God. And so God steps in and says, whoa, it's my son. This is my boy. Listen to him. I'm pleased in him. Listen to him. See, he said, this is my son. I'm pleased with him before. But this time he's saying, listen to him. And the word there is like, it's like the same conveyance of Shema in the Old Testament, which means not just to hear the sound, but you listen and you obey. It's an action-based listening. He's saying, so hear him and do what he tells you to do. Why? Because Peter's going, Lord, that ain't going to happen to you. Wait a minute, I thought, who's, who's in charge? And guys, when we look at our own life, we do the same thing all the time. We say he's king, but do we listen to him? We say he's our Lord, but do we listen to him? Heck, half of us don't even know what he says because we don't spend any time in the Word. And you're not going to know what he says until you spend time in the Word. You don't get it by osmosis. You've got to spend time. This is, his, this is the way that he's chosen to reveal himself to us. And what's so interesting is, is there anybody in here who would dispute that this right here, what we're reading about, is the most incredible spiritual experience that any follower of Jesus could have had in their entire life? Is there anything more? I mean, when he died and they saw the resurrected Jesus, I don't think they saw the full measure of his glory like he, they saw here. You know why I know? that or why I believe that is because people didn't even recognize him when they saw him after he was resurrected unless he revealed himself to them. So even then it wasn't this, but he gave them a window here of his glory. And Peter in 2 Peter 1 says, yes, we were up on the mountain. Yes, we saw this, but we have a more sure prophetic word and it was God's word. Peter takes scripture and says this is the way god communicates to us not through some extraneous experience because those experiences can be misinterpreted and misconstrued but my word is solid it will withstand the test of time and that's why you can't base your spiritual life on some experience you have listen i'm not saying you can't have spiritual experiences i've had them i've had incredible spiritual experiences but they all have to go through the lens of the Word. And if they ever deviate from what He says in the Word, His Word always takes priority. And that's what Peter was saying. Because a lot of people were trying to get people to go look for experiences rather than what God had revealed through His Word. And that's where you get into error. And it happens all the time. So we have the witness of His Word and the witness of His presence. Now I want you to make just a couple quick observations. 
In Genesis 3, back at, we heard God's voice, right? When he's speaking to Adam and Eve. In Exodus, Exodus, Moses heard God's voice. In Deuteronomy, we hear, we, we read in Deuteronomy 4 about the voice of God in Deuteronomy 5. Even Isaiah heard the voice of God. There were other prophets that heard the voice of God. But again, the voice of God in the New Testament we see came when? When Jesus was baptized? And when? When He was up on that mountain. So on the road to Damascus, that was Jesus talking to Paul. We're talking God the Father here. And when God the Father spoke, they were terrified. It says they were on their face terrified. So much so, they didn't even want to look up. That's why I say, if you hear God's voice audibly, you're going to be on your face. Because it's going to be terrifying because God's so holy and we're not. Even as believers, we're not. Finally, the last one, the last witness is this witness of a prophetic messenger. They, they come down from the mountain and obviously they're talking about Elijah because they just seen Elijah, right? And they're talking about the Bible says he must come and they're talking through this. And Jesus explains to them that Elijah was John the Baptist. There was a prophetic messenger back in Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. It says this, Behold, I will send my messenger. He will prepare the way before me. And that's talking about Elijah because chapter 4, verse 5 says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. So the Jewish people were looking for an Elijah-type prophet or Elijah himself. They didn't know, but they were looking for Elijah to return. Now, if you go back to 2 Kings 1.8 and read, it says this about Elijah. He wore a garment of hair with a belt of leather around his waist. And he was Elijah the Tishbite. That's what it says. If you flip over to Matthew chapter 3, verse 4, it says, Now John wore a garment of camel hair and a leather belt around his waist. <clears throat> How did they miss that? They knew the Scriptures. They knew the Scriptures. It says over in Isaiah 43 that He will... Prepare the way of the Lord. He will make the path straight. Over in Matthew 3, the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make His path straight. Right out of Isaiah. Jesus explained in Matthew 11, verses 7 to 14, that John the Baptist was Elijah. He, he just stated it simply for the disciples. We already talked about that. So he fulfilled that prophecy and he was a witness again of the fact that he prepared the way for Jesus. So Jesus was the Messiah. He was God. He was deity. Unveiled light, written word, holy presence, the witness of God's prophetic messenger. Four witnesses to the fact that he was God. Jesus is God. So what? So what? Well, there's two instructions in this passage that He gives those disciples. Listen to Him and don't be afraid. Listen to Him and don't be afraid. Listen to Him what? 
for those of you who have not spent a lot of time going through Scripture, maybe, or maybe you just haven't remembered, I jotted down a list of the things that Jesus said. Repent. Follow me. Rejoice. Let your light shine. Honor God's law. Be reconciled. Do not lust. Keep your word. Go the second mile. Love your enemies. Be perfect. Practice spiritual discipline. Lay up treasures in heaven. Seek God's kingdom above all. Judge not. Ask, seek, and knock. Love others more than yourself. Choose the narrow way. Beware of false prophets. Pray for laborers. Be wise as serpents. Fear God and not man. Hear and obey my word. Honor your parents. Guard yourself against bad teaching. Deny yourself. Die to yourself. Don't despise little innocent ones. Beware of coveting. Forgive people who offend you. Honor your marriage. Be a servant. Be a house of prayer. Ask in faith. Give to those who are needy. Love the Lord with everything you've got. Love your neighbor. Keep watch and wait for my return. Are we watching and waiting for him to come back? Keep my commandments. Watch and pray. Feed my sheep. Baptize my disciples. Receive God's power. Make disciples and teach them everything that I've commanded. Those are all things that Jesus has said to us. And we're responsible. We can't just go, whoops, I don't want to do that, God. It's not an option for me. I'm not a minister. I'm not a priest. I'm not a pastor. That's what he tells us to do. Will we listen and will we obey? When we fail to do that and he reveals it to us, what he wants is for us to acknowledge and what the very first thing I said is repent and say, God, I'm sorry. Help me to be better at this. Help me to learn how to do this. He wants us to continue to stay in the fight and not to pull back because that, that is not what he wants because we have too much ground to cover before he returns. And we're all warriors in this battle. So... Um, I, I want to close with this last verse, Hebrews 3.15. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses and with whom he pro was provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of their unbelief. When we fail to listen, guys, we demonstrate unbelief. That's the bottom line. So my prayer for each one of us as we leave here is that we will allow what God said through his word today to permeate our hearts to where we walk through that door as His believers and we listen and we obey. We don't let the enemy distract us from that. So, Ronnie, will you close our time in prayer? Heavenly Father, we thank You.